Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Today, today is the, uh, today we have our bi-weekly monastic Dhamma panel in three hours time via Facebook and YouTube live, not on my channel, but on the West End Buddhist channel. And tonight's topic is illness, I think specifically mental illness. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit about this now, sort of get the ideas flowing. Give you a little bit of a preview. I assume many of you are not going to see that broadcast anyway. And then uh, after I've talked for a little bit, as usual, we'll have question and answer. So you're welcome to post questions in the chat. Today we have Ulu and Rahid organizing the questions, and Chris is going to be asking them. Rahid is new. If if anyone else is interested in joining the, if we have volunteers who are interested in joining the crew, helping us, maybe uh, take turns asking the questions if someone wants to be the asker, well then Chris has to help them figure out how to do that. But good if we have an extra backup. So. Our topic today is illness. And first of all, so it goes without saying that there are two kinds of illness, physical illness and mental illness. And physical illness is not so bad. Physical illness gets you in the, get, well, for most people it's not so bad. It's not so bad because it's not, it's not a major issue in the world. For someone who has a chronic illness, it's a horrible, terrible, debilitating thing. It can be. Those who have cancer or even diabetes, heart disease. those who have debilitating illnesses like multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, and so on. It's a large part of their life. But it's still not such a big deal simply because it's not that prevalent. It's not that prevalent. Even in these pandemic times, no, it would, it's easy to dispute what I say because Obviously, it is a huge issue right now, right? But it's actually not. It's not a huge issue in reality. Now, it absolutely is an issue, a huge, a huge issue, practically speaking, but not directly. COVID-19 is not afflicting the vast majority of the population, right? 
it's gone across the world, but the percentage of people who have who have acquired it is is still a small percentage, and the percentage of those people who have actually suffered dramatically directly from it is still even lower. And in fact, you could say the suffering from physical illness in general for those who acquire physical illness is quite low. Even for someone who has what appears to be a debilitating illness, the suffering that comes directly from the illness itself is, is, is minuscule, generally speaking. Even for horrible, horrible illnesses like cancer or, or, the, or multiple sclerosis or something like ALS, that sort of thing. Because the, the majority of the suffering, in fact, you might even say all of the true suffering, or, or suffering that is far more significant, comes from the mind, and so can still be labeled mental illness. Someone who has a debilitating illness can be at peace, free from suffering, or free from any meaningful suffering. They're still going to suffer physically, but it ceases to be meaningful for someone who has become enlightened. And so, so for those who are unenlightened, rarely rarely an hour goes by in our whole life rarely an hour goes by where we don't have some sort of mental illness cropping up mental illness is far more debilitating far more far more urgent Far bigger problem because it affects everyone all the time. It affects a far greater proportion of the population, and and it doesn't choose. It's not like the, there's a there's a mental illness season, like the flu season. You don't just catch a depression in the fall and then it goes away. And if you get a vaccine for it, you can avoid the worst of it. One thing to note about mental illness, though, is that a portion of it still is physical. And this is the portion that modern medicine tends to deal with. Right? The, the mind has an effect on the brain, but the brain is physical. And likewise, the brain has an effect on the mind, but the mind is not the brain. And they, they work together quite clearly. But the word brain is just a, a name for a pattern of physical 
manifestations, you know, physical events of, of physical aspects of experience that arise and cease, that when taken together, uh, give us the idea or the concept of a brain. And in fact, all we have are the moments, the patterns. We think of ourselves as having a brain. If you open up someone's head, you see something that you you cog you you conceive of as a brain. But the important aspect of a brain for mental illness is the effects it has on the mind and the effects the mind has on it. And it's probably not one or the other. It's probably uh, an, an echo or a feedback loop where some of it could be genetic that you're born with, but some of it certainly is the effects of patterned mental behavior on the workings of the brain that then creates a feedback loop and stimulates and triggers further mental activity. You can see this very simply in a lot of mental illness, how it becomes a feedback loop where you, uh, you, you react to certain states in the brain where there's not enough serotonin or so on or dopamine or oxytocin oxytocin, and these chemicals, whatever they are. And there's a disliking of that, and that in turn hurts the, the brain or prevents the brain from, from working in terms of creating these systems of pleasure and, and peace and in terms of creating stresses on the brain that trigger further disliking when the brain isn't working or the, the, the body in general isn't working well. Because it ripples out, of course, into the muscles, the tension in the body, it ripples out into the systems of digestion and uh, circulation and so on. The mind has effect, an effect on all these things through the brain. And all of these things in turn affect the mind. So one important thing to note about mental illness is that you're not going to fix all these things in the body, not directly. They've all been affected by the mind, and so you can ameliorate them over time. But they also have been a part in creating the, the mental illness, and they may be organic, they may be genetic. There may be a certain dispositions or certain qualities uh, physical qualities of your brain, your brain, that are different from other people's brains. That mean you won't get as much of these nice chemicals that keep you happy, and that that the mind can comfortably deal with. And so you have a more challenging experience, just like any physical experience. Some people feel more physical pain than others. Doesn't mean they have to suffer more. It just means they're more likely to suffer more. Right. Someone who doesn't have a lot of physical pain has an easier time of it. Doesn't make them a better person, doesn't make them 
more enlightened, it just makes them happier because they don't have to deal with, they have an easier time dealing with things. I mean, there's more of a potential to be happy, at least in the short term. So when dealing with mental illness on a practical, on an on a experiential level, on, on a meditation, on a meditative level, we have to understand that meditation isn't going to fix our problems. And that goes both for the physical and the mental. Our goal should not be to fix our mental illness. At, at least not in the short term. I think in the long term it's, it's okay and potentially good to think of it as helping out with your mental illness. Of course, you want some reassurance that this is going to change your life for the better. And it should, it will. If done properly, there's no question. It's not a question of maybe it will, maybe it won't. It will. It will fix all your mental illness over time. Now, oh, if some of it's very uh, ingrained in a um, an organic genetic level, then things like schizophrenia or psycho, you know, psychotic episodes, that sort of thing, uh, it, it probably won't fix those in this life. But even those are, are temporary in terms of being related to karma and, and, well, chance sometimes, just the strangeness of samsara. And so by sorting things out mentally in the next life, in lives to come, you'll, it'll smooth itself out if you're headed in the right direction. The mind comes first, manopabhangamadhamma. When your mind is set in the right direction, the physical will change. But in the short term, that's not the practice. That's not the aim. The aim, like you're shooting a gun and you have a target. Don't aim for the practice to somehow fix things. Aim for the practice to create better clarity. Better clarity at the very beginning in terms of the difference between the mental and the physical. Realizing that even the quality of our experiences is, is highly dependent a lot of the times on the physical. So we might not be as happy as people. And meditation isn't going to necessarily change that. Sometimes it can, but it's not reliable. And it's certainly not what you should be aiming for or, or reaching for, the goal you should be looking for. Why is clarity better? Well, first of all, it's better because it's more uh, more possible. I mean, it's actually possible. Fixing is not really a thing. It's not dependable. Seeing clearly is much more reliable. It's something that you actually can accomplish in the here and now. It, it's, it's the main and direct result of mindfulness. Simply by practicing uh, through the four satipatthana, this is what gives rise to what we call vipassana, which means seeing clearly. But why would you want to see clearly and what good is it? Seeing clearly breaks the chain, it breaks the feedback loop, because it breaks this uh, connection making of reactivity, where you think of something as bad, good, or even me, mine. All of these things that actually end up being problems, you see that they're a cause for problem. When you see clearly, 
You see that the things that I cling to are not worth clinging to. The things I react to are not worth reacting to. That they're not what I thought they were. The, the conception I had of them generally as entities is not what they actually are, which is experiences. And that reacting itself is stressful. And so this general sense of greater clarity starts to do the work itself of changing things. And mental illness is, is alle alleviated in that way. Think of it always as a two-step process or even a three-step process. It's not cut and dried where you practice and the result comes. It's not just cause and effect. It's cause and effect, and then effect is a cause for a further effect. So the cause, the, the cause that we are invoking is mindfulness, and the only effect is going to be clarity. Be clear about that. The only direct effect is seeing clearly. There's no, there's no fixing. There's no healing. There's no um, curing. No, no enlightenment. Even. Well, there's no freedom from suffering that comes directly from it. Seeing clearly is what more or less directly frees us from suffering. It, because it frees us from, um, well, even still frees us from the cause of suffering. So, so, so no, not directly. Seeing clearly leads us to let go of and cancel and avoid and prevent the causes of suffering, which in turn, not being present, frees us from suffering. So it's a multi-step process. And the only part that we're concerned with is the first part, which means two things, I think. One, we, we, we should not, we should watch when our mind focuses or, or concerns itself with results. Uh, am I feeling better? Is this working? Is this working? Questions are usually related to expectations that are unrelated to the actual result, which is seen clearly. And the second thing is the understanding that um, meditation only works on the mind and the physical aspect of mental illness, the physical aspect of illness is going to sometimes be ameliorated or, or improved, and sometimes not, but has nothing to do directly with your mental state. It need not give rise to mental suffering. And so being able to dissociate those two is an important part of the practice, so that we're not trying to fix or expecting some change in the physical but we're expecting some change in the mental. You know, the first being the clarity of mind, the second being the freedom from defilement, hindrance, uh, mental illness, and so on. And finally, the freedom from suffering that comes from that. So some thoughts on illness. Again, just a brief talk. I think I'll quit there and we'll move into questions and answers if there are any. If not, we can always end early. Tonight I have another broadcast with this international group. But questions now, so now only in the chat, questions only, please.
Okay, let's begin. After office and study, I feel tired and lazy to practice the meditation like before. Can you give proper suggestions in dealing with this? I mostly feel very much sluggish and tired nowadays. Well, doing too much work is, is one of the things to avoid in meditation. Now, obviously, you, you don't have a choice how much work you do. But acknowledging that you just have to be manage your expectations and do what you can. On the one hand, one so one, manage your expectations and, and accept that that's a part of your reality. But two, take it as a part of your reality. So actually try and be mindful of the tiredness, the laziness, the aversion perhaps to meditation. You're chipping away, and that's part of the chipping away, bit by bit. And eventually your attitude changes, that's the goal. Just be patient and and committed, you know, committed to bettering yourself mentally. If you're committed to it, then you can apply it throughout the day and all the time throughout your life. So this isn't something that many people will accomplish in the next week or even month, something that can be years or even lifetimes. But commit yourself to bettering your mind. See, committing yourself to Buddhism is, is not like converting to some religion or something. Committing yourself to Buddhism is because of how pure and perfect it is. And it really is pure and perfect because there's nothing, you know, listen to what I'm talking about. You can't find anything in mindfulness or vipassana seeing clearly that is objectionable or um, specific to some culture or something like that. There's no religious views here. And because it's so perfect, it's, it, it, it should be what we commit. You know, it's something we can tell people, we can, we can encourage with a, with a good, pure conscience. We can, we can push people or, or encourage people to commit to it. Commit to it. Everyone, we should com everyone in the world should commit to this practice of bettering themselves mentally in, in an objective way that doesn't relate to religion or views or beliefs or so on. So if you're committed to it and you do what you can, it's just chipping away, chipping away. Try and look at any discouraged feelings or, dis or frustration or so on. Guilt feelings and that sort of thing. Just do what you can. Is it good to practice in this sequence? Jhana, followed by metta, followed by noting. No, I mean, metta is for the purpose of gaining the jhanas, so it should be practiced before practicing jhanas. But if you're practicing our technique, we don't work on the samatha jhanas. So you would just do the noting. And certain certain forms of jhana may arise, should arise, uh, but it's not like the samatha jhanas. I have been going through grief, and it has made the practice very difficult. Do you have advice for grief and practicing with it?
there's nothing wrong with the practice being very difficult. And that's an important thing to sort of get your head around. Uh, just see that it, that's kind of a reaction where that become, where you see that as a problem. You know, difficult is, is an important lesson or an important object of observation for us. Again, just like as I was saying, don't expect it to go away just because you're noting it. Be be content that you can see it clearly. The 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 sort of the the issue arises when we want to fix things. That's what makes it really difficult. When we we feel like we have to do something more than just watch it, more than just see it clearly. And a big part of the meditation is changing that that attitude of trying to, of expecting more, of trying for more. Part of seeing clearly is about just seeing clearly without having any other other motives or other ambitions or other other drives, other inclinations. Part of seeing clearly is about just seeing, about removing, about letting go of the rest of that, or seeing the stress involved with our desire for things to change, our aversion to things and that sort of thing. So your 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 practice has to be to commit and and persist in just seeing the grief for what it is even even when it's that's a challenge when i practice vipassana and i have a pain or hear a sound do i stay with that body sensation until it goes away then go back to the breath or do I take note of the sensation and then go back to the breath? I'm not sure what type of meditation you're practicing. because pain is not physical and neither is a sound or hearing a sound mm, the sound sorry the sound is physical that's true um but it's not a sensation it's an experience uh, so so if i took this at face value i'd give you advice based on our tradition but it sounds like you might be practicing another tradition when you practice our tradition of satipatthana vipassana when you feel pain then you would stay with the pain until it goes away saying pain 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 and once it's gone then you would go back to the stomach not the breath but the movement of the stomach when you breathe when the stomach rises you would say rising when the stomach falls you would say falling and sound would you can do the same but the thing about sound is it might not go away of course pain might not also but sound generally if it's sound outside it might not go away so after a while with the pain or with the sound you can just ignore it and go back to the rising falling should one use labels when noting for the rest of one's life or is there a time when you can drop the labeling and just notice sensations 
I mean, you can do what you want, but it's not training. We wouldn't consider it training, in, at least in this tradition, when you stop using them. So use them whenever you can. You'll find it beneficial. How should we proceed when we miss a touching point by an inch or so? What proximity should we allow for, i.e. an inch, etc.? If you have an experience of missing it, that's a cognition, that's an awareness, and you should note knowing or aware. We don't have a good word for it in English, aware or knowing. I usually say knowing, even though it's more like aware. Um, knowing is, is okay. You just say knowing, knowing, when you know that you missed it. So you're, not, you're acknowledging that awareness. It's not about how close you get, it's about the awareness of it. If you didn't notice that you missed it, then well, there's nothing to note. But the noticing itself is an experience, and you should note that. When we are sick, is it okay to rest and sleep more? Yes. Sickness is um, an exception for meditation. It's, some, it's a time when putting out effort in meditation it can actually be a bad idea right it can exacerbate the sickness prolong your recovery you should take it take it easy in terms of formal meditation but try your best of course to be mindful even more so try to be mindful sickness can be a great catalyst for enlightenment so be vigilant about your actual noting I have an anger issue. I tend to get really angry at people, especially my parents. I try to be mindful, but before I realize anger is arising, I burst out. Any advice? Mm -hmm. Parents, because we have such a strong and long-standing connection with them, it's very hard to overcome. I mean, hard and easy are... are irrelevant really so when you burst out then you realize let's say the answer is well to be mindful when you realize it it isn't necessarily the case that you always burst out before you realize the anger is arising but even when it has already burst out. With meditation, the, the object is the present moment. And, and that's a marvelous thing about it is you'll never have to go looking for it. And you never should. It's common for meditators in the beginning to go back to experiences they didn't note and wish that they had noted them or anticipate noting something in the future. And that's not right practice, right? You should note whatever happen, is happening now. So you burst it out. Well, what's happening now? Now that you have, do you feel guilty? Are you afraid of what's going to happen? Do you feel flushed or hot in the body because of the anger, tense, stress? Do you hear loud sounds because the person you yelled at is yelling back at you? Any mindfulness you can have at any time. Satincho kohang bikuwe sabatikang wadami. Mindfulness, O oh monks, I say, is useful all the time, anytime, every time.
as long as you apply it to what's happening now, it's always going to be useful. If you do that, that you're more likely to be able to catch it earlier. Your mindfulness becomes sharper. You're much better able to catch things early, catch more things, and therefore catch some of the things you didn't catch before, like anger. When you feel angry, it just takes practice, like any skill. To what extent must we push through drowsiness? I try to note it, but end up exhausting myself and end up going to sleep. I feel as though I am sleeping excessively, though. Well, one thing you can do is try to do lying meditation. Rather than ever, ever going to sleep, really, if you're dedicated to meditation, you should never go to sleep. You should go to lie down mindfully and just lie there mindfully, rising, falling, or whatever, until you do fall asleep. Falling asleep should be something that happens in spite of your efforts to be mindful. But then you'll know you're not actually encouraging it or cultivating it. Um, but you know, this is a, a problem that relates more to the way we live our lives in the world. Changing your lifestyle is, is a huge part of fixing that, and increasing the amount of meditation you do is a part of fixing that as well. Now, not neither of those, both of those might not be achievable for individuals, so, you know, to, it's to what extent you're able to fix them. Just keep in mind that that's going to be a reality until you change some of those things, that you may sleep more than you'd like, you may be more tired than you like. But being tired isn't a problem. One thing you don't want to do is try to force away the tired or see it as a bad thing or something. Just try and see it clearly and see it clearly and see it clearly. And if that practice leads you to lie down, then lie down seeing it clearly. I mean, lie down applying mindfulness, tired, tired, so that seeing clearly arises. I am required to take medication due to a mental illness. I am considering leaving my family because of this. Is it permissible to run away from a situation like this? So there's details maybe missing that make this not quite clear what you're saying. Required means someone else is requiring you. As I understand this, this means your family is requiring you to take mental take medication due to a mental illness and is it permissible to run away if running away is what it's going to take to not have to take medication i i'm i'm generally against taking medication for mental illness as a as an idea as a philosophy let's say so there are lots of things that can be used as a stopgap measure, and I think it's fine and unreasonable for people to use these medications as a stopgap measure for, for as long as they don't have skills and instruction in something better, like, well, it's in mindfulness, basically. Um, and, and depending on the severity of the mental illness, that might be asking a lot. Like, just because you read my booklet on how to meditate or even do the at-home course, 
doesn't mean that you're going to be able to overcome serious mental illness. So until you have the capacity to see clearly your mental illness to the point that it doesn't actually cause you to do or say or, or even think, well, do or say anyway, uh, things that are harmful to yourself and, and, and out of control, then maybe taking mental taking medication is necessary for you. It's just technically it's not necessary, but but practically because you don't have the skills or the teaching required to for you to, to deal with and overcome your mental illness, well practically it's the only thing you've got is this medication. So that's sort of the criteria I would use. Um, I think uh, resigning yourself to taking medication for your whole life is I really strongly disagree with that philosophy, and I, 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 especially because it tends to get in the way of your meditation. It's hard to cultivate this clarity when you're on the medication because there's avoidance involved and there's the repression of ordinary states. You're not going to have the experiences that ordinary people... Well, you're not going to have the experiences that you would have... Not, I didn't mean ordinary people. Experiences that you would have without the medication is what I mean. By ordinary, I mean people who aren't taking medication, not people who don't have your mental illness. So by taking the medication, you're going to be missing out on the, th the, the, the basis of true insight, which is the mental illness, what we call mental illness. It's just that, as I said, for many people, some people, let's say, um, that's too much to ask, and they're not able to do what I'm asking them to do with the resources that they have and I understand that and absolutely they they it's understandable that they're taking medication instead. So that's sort of a general background to this. As to your specific situation and your your specific question, I don't think running away is ever or running away is running away from your family is a categorically bad thing to do. There are many reasons why you might run away from a situation, even your family. So even all that we say about family and respecting your parents and appreciating your parents and trying to have good relationship with your parent, all of that has to be mitigated and, and relegated to a secondary position uh, in contrast to, well, let's say your mental health. But, but more accurately the practice of of the dhamma i mean it, it's basically one and the same so but but not just mental health let's say because mental health is kind of putting too much of a selfish spin on it goodness wholesomeness purity this is what we strive we, this is the way we look at it in buddhism it's not about just being a healthy individual it's about being a pure they're one and the same, really, but look at it in terms of being a good person, because that's the key, is that um, staying with your parents can actually be an unwholesome thing to do. It causes unwholesomeness. It causes evil. Let's put a fine point on it. It causes you to be evil. It causes the people around you to be evil. Running away from a situation like that is generally, by and large, a good thing to do. And so kids leaving their parents is often a good thing to do simply because they're unable to 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 exist wholesome in a wholesome relationship with their parents our relationship with our family is often incredibly unwholesome 
we fight, we argue. And even just when we uh, play with each other, it's all just in entertainment or sensuality relating to spouses, but even just relating to brothers and sisters. We, we play games or we joke or we play fight or whatever we do, you know. Even the way we talk to each other is uh, insulting each other as a joke. Acting. The way we talk is often unwholesome, just by habit. So separating from yourself from your family, in my mind, is an important first step for a lot of people, and especially non-Buddhists who haven't, whose family life is not cultured around Buddhism, and and thereby very unwholesome. You know, there's often alcohol involved or drugs, yeah, that, that sort of thing. But there's almost always unwholesome speech and actions, and so don't. So so I just want to reassure you that running away from your family is not is usually there, there's it's not usually it's quite often a good thing, quite often reasonable to do. Um, and so in this specific case, I can't give you advice as far as whether you should stop taking your medication, especially because it's illegal for me to do that. Um, I'm 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 inhibited from often saying what I truly think, um, and and you know, absolutely, I'm in no position to tell you something without having the resources to help you uh, deal with that decision. So, generally speaking, going off your medication just because you think your meditation will be a substitute is often a bad idea. I mean, it's often not going to have the desired results and you'll just end up going back on the medication or even worse medication because of the, the backlash so I, I would going off medication I would be very careful about if that's what you're considering but in terms of let's just speak in terms of um, being in control of your life and having your life out of the control of others I think there's something very important to that not not exactly because we have to have control but because we're often under the control of influences that are uh, based on ignorance, that have nothing to do with principles of clarity of mind, purity of mind, and enlightenment, that are not in line with the Dhamma. Especially if we're in a religious environment, we'll often be under the influence of people whose views are, you know, just keep someone functional so that they can praise Jesus, or that, you know, so whatever religion it might be. So getting out of that situation, not just religious situations, but situations where the views are not based on right view and not actually in line with with a, a path that is going to eventually allow you to face and overcome and, and really free yourself from the power of these mental conditions. If you're in a situation like that, you really should probably get out. So not so that you immediately, for example, go off some medication you might be taking, but so that you're in a position of making decisions that are based on uh, wisdom and clarity and, and you know, free from dogma and views and ignorance and delusion and partiality and craving and all those things. So family often, if your family is not enlightened, then, then they may very well be making decisions for you that are not based on wisdom. And it's hard to say, I can't certainly can't tell you what the case is, but just basically I'll reassure you that running away from your family is, is often understandable and, and reasonable and, and a good idea in my mind.
not i mean temporarily of course it goes without saying that eventually you really should try to get on good uh, a good relationship with your family but that's something that i think eventually comes about and can't come about when you're too close you have to redefine the terms of your relationship first psychosis i tried lowering my dose of medication i couldn't sleep enough i know you say not sleeping is not a problem but then i can't function normally what would be the best thing to do well it's it's good be, it's good because it's important to look at that not functioning normally i mean that's really where your your issue probably is and where your practice is going to be best served try to apply mindfulness to where what it means can't function normally what aspect of your experience leads you to perceive it as not functioning normally if it's in terms of can't perform at my work or something like that then well that's unfortunate and i can understand people taking medication or you know perpetually taking medication simply because it, their job requires it but even then um it, at the very least i would say it's a matter of degree where you don't go off but you lower so you lower your dose of medication and then you don't sleep as much try not to say enough because that kind of language reinforces in your mind that there's something wrong and it's not there is no such thing as a wrong thing nothing is ever wrong it always is what it is and or at the very least our attitude shouldn't and at the very least need not be in terms of right and wrong right and wrong is going to sort itself out because you see clearly our focus should simply be on seeing clearly not on discerning right or wrong so try and see things not as problems but as experiences to be understood not fixed so if you sleep less i mean that very well could be not enough for x right but try and just see it as the as the the state of being tired for example or the fact that you're now awake when, when you wouldn't be normally be asleep and try and be mindful of that mindfulness is not going to hurt you so i mean lowering your dose of medication may be too much i don't know but suppose you do it sounds like a reasonable solution probably something you should talk to your doctor about i assume that's the kind of thing you have to talk to your doctor before you do and i would certainly recommend that you at least engage with your doctor about what you're doing because they'll know more much more about it and they're they're actually i mean i'm not telling you to lower but saying that you are lowering okay i can discuss that the result being that you don't sleep enough and then b can't function normally again look at what it means to not function normally because normal is 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 an illusion first of all there is no such thing as normal there only is how you're functioning and if you mean that you can't do certain things that are required for you to do well then yes you have to on the one hand maybe limit your efforts to limit but on the other hand expand your view of what is acceptable if it's just in terms of don't like the way i'm functioning then work on your disliking or you know giving rise to emotions i want to avoid giving rise to mental states that i want to avoid work on your avoidance and that's really a part of the the healing process is expanding what is acceptable to you expanding the the field of what you can endure and what you can live with because 
an ordinary person is only able to live with, accept and 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 uh, well accept a small portion of their reality, right? So they're always trying to align themselves with that subset of their experiences. And any time an experience arises outside of that subset, they immediately have a problem and they have to fix it. That's what we're trying to do in meditation: is expand that until all of experiences. If not, you might not say acceptable, but is uh, um, impotent in terms of causing stress and suffering for us. It is unable to trigger a reaction from us, where we are independent of our experience, not dependent. I don't know. So hopefully that helps a little bit. If you're interested, you might consider, um, if you're able to do at least an hour a day meditation, we could do an at-home course. If you don't know if you've even read our booklet on how to meditate, but um, you know something you could talk about. You don't want to expect some kind of miracle cure, as I said, but uh, you certainly can. I mean, it sounds like you're in, heading in the right direction. Just don't be discouraged, and try your try to find a way to uh, expand the realm of what is acceptable. How long do we stay with an experience such as pain before deciding that it isn't going away and return to the rising and falling? Well, probably about when you decide that it isn't going to go away, then you go back. There's no harm with staying with it longer and longer. It's just eventually you're going to be like not seeing the point of staying with it. It's been a while. It's been quite a while. And you get a sense that you've had enough of it, then just go back. There's no hard. I don't put it. We don't put a rule on it because it's not like that. It's just when the mind kind of shifts and is no longer um, distracted by it, you know. But but stay with it for a while. Don't just quickly give it up. Stay with it for quite a while. And if it does go away, great. Then go back. If it doesn't, after a while, then eventually you just go back. I'm able to practice with effort when I'm suffering, and it does help, but when things get better, I fall into pleasures. The most excruciating thing is boredom. I can't stand it. How do I face it? Well, mindfulness, you, there's no, I have no trick for you. Mindfulness is the trick. You face it by using mindfulness. And the technique we use to evoke mindfulness is to re remind ourselves. When you're bored, you would say, bored, bored. And if you dislike the boredom, disliking, disliking. That's how you face it. If you're interested, maybe you haven't done our at-home course. If you're interested, you could sign up for that. It's all free. When traveling, when not having the place to do walking meditation, do we just do sitting? You can do walking if you don't have a place, or if you do have a place, but yeah, right when you don't have a place, yeah, just do sitting. Fine. Lately during meditation, I feel a pressure in my left eyebrow. Focusing on it makes it stronger and more painful. Meditation used to help me feel less stressed, but now it does the opposite. 
Any advice? So meditation doesn't exist. Meditation can't make you feel stress. Right? Meditation isn't a reality. It isn't a thing. Meditation is a um, condition that we place on our experiences. But the real things are experiences. So let's take this apart. The pressure on your left eyebrow, if it gets stronger or weaker, is not the point. We're not trying to get rid of it. So it's so I don't know what you mean by focusing on it because focusing is not our focus. Our focus is reminding ourselves. When you feel pressure, you would say to yourself, pressure or feeling, feeling. Uh, when you feel pain, well, pain is is might be a result of focusing or whatever. But when pain arises, we don't concern ourselves with what is the cause. When you feel pain, you just say pain, pain, trying to just see it clearly for what it is. And none of that should make you stressed. When that does make you stressed, well, stress is another experience. So then you would note stress, stress. Just because you're practicing meditation doesn't mean that you're not going to be stressed. Meditation is about seeing clearly, and part of what you have to see clearly is your habits of stress. Maybe you're getting stressed more lately. Maybe because of the way you're applying your meditation, you're getting more stressed. That's common in the beginning. Because... First of all, you're facing your experiences in a way that uh, you wouldn't before. Normally when you, something bad comes up, you just try to divert your attention. But secondly, because in the beginning we're not very good at meditation, so we're going to do it all wrong, and doing it all wrong is a part of the practice. When you see that you're doing it wrong, and then you adjust. In the beginning we try to control and fix and wish for things to go away. And so our noting is only like a magic trick to make things go away. And when that doesn't work, we can become quite stressed when things get worse. But seeing that it's getting worse is actually an important part of the practice. You're seeing that you're not in control. Our idea is that when we do something, it's going to have some result that we want, just magically, right? But there's no magical reason why noting should make your, the thing that you're noting go away. Noting is only to remind yourself that that's all it is. Be clear about that. Noting is only for the purpose of seeing things clearly as they are, not any other purpose. It's the seeing clearly that changes the nature of things and the relationship of things, the relationship we have with things. I have not taken good care of my body and mind for years, and now I feel really empty and ruined. I feel like I need some direction but I don't know how to find it. Any advice? So this relates to self. I mean, not just the obvious self of I feel, but it's not even so much the I as it is the idea that you are a thing, that you are an entity, or your body is an entity. Your body is an entity, your mind is an entity, and they aren't. Those aren't things that exist. All that exists are experiences, and that hasn't changed from before you did what you say you did like not taking care of it, before you stop taking care of yourself, uh, that hasn't changed. You're still only experiences, and those experiences still arise and cease. And so the field of insight, the field of clarity, the field of mindfulness is still there. So the only direction you need is, is to stop moving, to stop going in any direction, and to learn how to be present, learn how to take care of the true best way to take care of yourself, which is to be here and be present and try to apply the technique of mindfulness so that you can do that, so you can be present and see clearly. If you haven't read our booklet, that's where I would recommend to start if you haven't done our at-home course. 
Maybe consider doing that. Practical steps you can take. I would like to attend a proper course, but in my family, there is some concern about terminologies. Are you a guru? How can I reassure them it's not a kind of a cult? No, I'm not a guru. I'm just a bag of bones and guts and blood. I'm just some filthy, putrid mass of mental and physical phenomena. So I think I'm just a person. I'm just a human. Uh, there's no cult. There's only mindfulness. And if you exp if you learn about mindfulness, you can read my booklet. You can have them read my booklet. And that's all I teach. So nothing objectionable about that. Anyone who objects to that is has got problems of their own, and you have to they have to work those out. How does one arouse energy to remove the arisen and persisting defilements and prevent non-arisen defilements from arising? Well, there's lots of way to, ways to arouse energy. Sometimes it's from getting a good advice from someone that reassures you, surrounding yourself with people who have right effort. Uh, but probably the best way is to actually engage in the practice because that's self-fulfilling putting out effort in the practice of course builds your effort and then you're able to put out more effort in the practice and you build more and more effort i am not associated with any buddhist community to guide me but i feel extremely connected with the vajrayana practice and vajrapani mantra provide me great relief Please guide me. What's the way ahead? Well, anything that gives you relief is conventionally good. It's just uh, um, not necessarily going to free you ultimately from suffering. I mean, it may not be enough. I mean, any mantra, uh, unless it's based on ultimate reality, is not going to be enough to free you from suffering. Um... So I, I guess that and the fact that um, just because you feel connected to something doesn't make it, doesn't mean that it's going to be the thing that frees you from suffering. Right? People feel connected to all sorts of things. I, I, I'm not trying to directly discourage you. I obviously don't practice those things, so I have no recommendation for them. But uh, I would just caution you that that's not really a reason to choose something, even if you like me or liked what I had to say or felt a connection with my practice, that wouldn't be enough, I would say, to practice what I teach. It should be a reasonable and logical and rational and, and uh, understandable um, practice, relationship between the cause and the effect, you know, what the result is and why it leads to the result. Just because doing something seems to provide you relief uh, if, is, is, is a bad reason to follow it unless there is some understanding as to what exactly is going on, right? I mean, I could explain to you why certain mantras provide relief. It's because of the stimulation they give to the brain related to the concepts and ideas that appease us. 
Sometimes these are concepts, narratives that are related to the mantra. So usually with a religious or spiritual tradition, you're given a narrative related to enlightenment or related to certain deities or certain entities or certain qualities of mind. And all of that resonates in a certain way. It can be positive, can be negative, resonates with us. And that resonation, resonance can often create states of, of comfort and content, relief as you say. But that's it. I mean, there's nothing deeper than that. There is no, therefore, this is the path to true enlightenment. It's not. It's just a practice that leads to relief. Um, and, and why that isn't enough, I would say, and what I would ask you to consider, is that it doesn't change your potential for giving rise to stress and suffering. Relief from suffering is, is possible in many different ways. But the real solution, and what we call real and true enlightenment, is when there is not the possibility to give rise to suffering no matter what in the first place, such that you never need to find relief anymore. It's different. Things that provide relief are not actually the solution. That which provides clarity wisdom, insight, and not in an esoteric or, or mysterious way, just things that help you see clearly such that you start to think, how did I not see this before? No, it's not mysterious or esoteric or anything like that, but it's just seeing clearly about reality in a way that you really kind of thought you did already see, something you thought you knew everything about. That's what it is. When, when, when you gain that knowledge, that clarity, of this ordinary reality or, or all reality such that no matter what you experience, you're free from stress and suffering. That's enlightenment. Lumpo Chodok, one of his teachers in Thailand, he, he once, or he, he, on several occasions, he mentioned um, asking this old woman, 90-year-old woman, he said, how old are you? 90, 95, I think. Said, oh, so you've been around a while, huh? And she, oh, yeah. He said, so you know your body really well, huh? Oh yeah, 95 years. And he said, how many knuckles do you have on one hand? He said, without counting, don't count. Tell me how many knuckles you have on one hand. And he said, he said I don't even know that. This is our hand. This is something that we're supposed to know everything about. And it's clear that we don't know lots of things about our body, you know, simple body parts that we think are, are very familiar to us. Right? The funny thing is, in English, we have a saying, I you know something like you know the back you know something like the back of your hand it turns out we don't know the back of our hand all that well most of us but it's just a, making a point of the fact that we really don't know things that we think we know and much more especially the mind we know very little about the mind that we've lived with for so many years and that's what our focus is so that's where i would guide you that's the direction i would you know you you've come and asked me someone who's not involved with that practice uh, what I would sort of uh, point out that would be my commentary on that. Dante, we've crossed the hour. There's still one more question in Tier 1. Do you have time to answer? Go ahead, yeah. For progressing ahead, one has to take some risk. However, the fear of the negative outcome makes me feel depressed. How can I be in the present? Should risk be avoided? I don't understand what risk you have to take. That's the thing about mindfulness is there is no risk. 
You don't have to take any risk. So when you have fear, you should note that. You should get rid of this view that you have to take some risk. That's a view. You don't need that view. When the fear arises, note the fear, afraid, afraid. When you feel depressed, you would note depressed, depressed. That's how you're in the present. Quite simple. Uh, risk shouldn't be avoided, nor should it be specifically sought out. Mindfulness should be sought out. Mindfulness is really the only thing, and whatever it is that helps you stay mindful and be mindful, which is a lot of things. Things like ethics, things like formal meditation practice, that sort of thing. Also good deeds, helping others, doing good deeds is very supportive. That's what you should seek out. Thank you, Pente. That's probably going to be the end for now. Okay, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ulu, uh, Rahid. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Good questions. Wish you all a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.